Summer Pierre is an extremely inventive illustrator whose debut graphic novel, All the Sad Songs, has been really important to me as a text that helps you explore connections to the past and specific objects and pieces of art. In this conversation, we talk about how using the grid of comics can be a kind of safety net and beyond that she talks about works of graphic fiction that feel as she says like windows into a unique world ultimately though our conversation really centers on how to reflect artistically on miracle of healing life's risks issues of grief and the challenge involved in evoking music within a visual medium you had illustrations published in the sunday new york times kids mm -hmm. section you know, these images I thought were so wonderful. Oh, thanks. And, and I wanted to ask if you constructed them the way that you did because you were thinking about your audience and the fact mm. that, you know, your audience is primarily children. Were you trying to relate relate the kind of grim reality of the pandemic in a kind of friendly, non-threatening way with those? Um, I don't think it was a conscious choice. I think, you know, I, the thing is when you work with something like the New York Times, they have a direction that they want. Um, and so they come to me because they know what I do. Um, so hmm. I think it was just me intuitively interpreting, you know, the information in a way that, um, that I think I would anyway. Uh, but it had to be, it had to be not too complicated, um, but could be expressed sort of in a comic-y way, which helped because that's sort of what I do. Um, but I don't know if it was, I mean, it's funny, the thing of non-threatening, it's just you know, the idea of like soap being a superhero is very non-threatening. It's very empowering, you know, so yeah. um, making uh, soap sort of be like these um, tiny uh, badasses to this big giant COVID um, angry sort of spiky looking thing uh, was very natural for me. Yeah, I think empowering is the right word. And that's the kind of thing certainly kids need right now. Mm -hmm. um, there like there's so much instability for sure. Yeah. Um, I mentioned that your your website also, you know, has this comic diary. And I wondered if I could ask you about that. I mean, it's so it documents all these small moments and frustrations, mm -hmm. like feelings of self-doubt that people experience all the time. Yeah. Um, but I'm wondering, like, have you made the habit in the past of keeping a diary in comic format at all? Mm -hmm. um, I know that sometimes you publish them as illustrated haikus. Yeah. Uh, I had a guest on the podcast recently, Veronica Post. And she talks about how she actually can't keep a diary in anything other than a comic format mm. because she feels too self-conscious about writing about herself in any other way. Do you think that there's something maybe less earnest or serious about the comic format that lets us keep our feelings in a diary in a way that isn't so intense? Yeah, I think it's interesting because I started doing comics through diary format. That was how I entered the comic form. And, you know, I'd been a, I kept a journal for years and years and years. And um, I think with comics, there's something immediately intimate about the structure. Um, I don't know, it almost feels like to me, it's like the the grid or the the sequential nature of it is it's like there's this safety net, like there's already a boundary. So you can get really intimate really quickly. Um, and the thing that I sort of loved about it was I could really see my life in a way that I couldn't with regular journaling. You know, it's visual, but I also could have a sense of humor. I normally don't in my journal entries. You know, I'm pretty, 
bogged down in my feelings. But um, comics sort of required me to not be so bogged down in emotional life, but actually show life and to show the action in it. That So it was a nice marriage of the action and the feeling. And I think it, comics is very, very good for that. And I wanted to talk about a, a good example of that kind of approach, you know, seeing your life, showing life, trying to convey something intimate in comic form. You put together a beautiful short comic a couple of years ago titled, yes. They Don't Make Them Like This Anymore. Yeah. Um, it, it focuses on this connection we have to physical media in part mm-hmm. and physical spaces. And, you know, what I loved about this comic was the way you actually look back at the history of cartooning mm-hmm. through the work of John Stanley. Stanley's style is embedded inside yours and you're mm-hmm. able to juggle multiple different tones. You know, at the end, there's this brief moment of, of a kind of, you know, conveying of a feeling of melancholy. You write in that moment that you, quote, forgot what it was like to live with the windows open mm-hmm. and it like lingers with the, the reader. I wondered if there was a deliberate attempt here to juggle different styles and tones in a way that conveys a message about how we're constantly juggling multiple states of mind. Mm. I think it was more of like, I had never done anything like that. And I think for people who haven't seen it, it's, um, you know, I have this really heavy black and white style. And then it's a, a, my friend and I are in Peekskill, which is a town nearby. And uh, he says, let's go to this diner that John Stanley had gone to. And when we enter the diner, we literally enter like a spread, a John Stanley spread. Um, and I, I was really uh, curious about, I mean, I, I think I've been reading a lot of Kim Deitch, who I love very much. And he really planted the seed in me that, um, you know, comics is a physical space that we can go into and enter. And that's something that I felt so strongly as a kid and as a reader of comics. Um, and so I really wanted to express that. I wanted to have it be an actual place that we enter and become part of. And it's sort of, you know, it, it's funny, it's, it lightens the load. It's in color and it's sort of staticky, like it's printed on a newsprint. It was all very fun to do. Um, and then to return sort of my regular life. And I, I wanted it to be like an opening, like an inner opening for me, because I had been feeling so sort of shut down and like didn't know why. And then it was just like, I just needed light and color and silliness. And um, it, yeah, it, it was a different view for me. Yeah, I, I really loved that comic. And you're you're working in color more now, right? Yeah, I mean, that's I all I do now. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting too. And, but the, the work that I know you best for and that, um, you know, drew me to your work is all the sad songs, which, you know, I'm, I'm hoping we could spend some time talking about. Um, you know, it was nominated for an Eisner Award. And I think you've you've spoken with Noah Van Skyver on what being nominated for that war, award kind of meant mm-hmm. um, and how kind of bizarre the whole kind of culture of awarding comics, this distinction yeah. sort of has become. But um, it's certainly deserving of that nomination. I think mm. there's so much going on in that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just resonated so strongly with me. But I guess like first I wanted to ask you about how you felt when the book was released, mm. um, you know, short of being nominated. It, it's, you know, you have this short comic on your blog titled, If You Are Lucky, that mm-hmm. seems to give us a glimpse into like the double-edged nature of putting yeah. so much work into yeah. a project and then like putting it out into the world. It's a really evocative uh, short comic because 
I think it, again, like I can really relate to this feeling of exhilaration that comes from releasing something that you put so much energy into. There's this like surge of feeling connected to people, but then that surge kind of goes away. How do you feel now about your book's impact and like its role maybe alongside other texts and maybe especially texts by women Mm -hmm. that explore issues of anxiety, memory, identity, relationships through um, comics? Well, I'll speak uh, first to like what it felt like to be released. So I made this book and I mean, of course, it's like the first thing, first graphic novel. So for me, and I poured everything into it, as you might have, you can tell from the book. Um, And so, and I I had put out books before and I sort of knew the emotional game where you like put things out and you think like, I'm going to be famous. You know, like there's some like feeling of like, I'm going to get this instant gratification that, um, you know, I've always meant to get. And then of course the letdown is so real. And so going into this book, releasing it, I was like, put it out there. It'll be what it is. It's exciting. I'm going to celebrate. But I still went on the roller coaster. It was still like, I released it. And then, and everyone was like, I'm so excited to read this. And then you don't hear anything. It's just like crickets, you know? And I think it made me really understand like how many books have I read and I haven't reached out to the author to tell them how great that book is. And I think that's, it's not that books don't make impact is that people don't usually say so, (laughs) you know? Mm. Um, So it took a long time and I kind of went through a real depression, you know? Um, And I think that's very common that you put your heart into something, you put it out there. And after the initial release, you know, you're alone with it again. So initially I felt sort of like, well, great. Now I guess I have to go back to work and, you know, what does that mean and all of that? But now, you know, even as the Eisner nomination, like that was hugely shocking and surprising and gratifying But actually, it was like the year after, like last September when I went to SPX and I had like I noticed a lot of people came up to me and it was I really saw that it meant a lot to people. Um, And it's not that I heard from a lot of people, but the people who I did hear from it just the book really touched something in them. And that's like your greatest hope, you know, that you write a letter out to the universe and someone in the universe says, yes, I see myself in that. I mean, that's how my favorite art feels to me. And that's what I wanted this book to feel to somebody else. So I feel so, I just feel so satisfied with this book. You know, I feel really grateful that it's now outside of me and able to have a life of its own and touch other people. Just personally, I, you know, connect with this theme in the book of collecting and treasuring mixtapes, you know, it, it really yeah. drew me to the book. Nice. Um, and, uh, you know, I was going through a breakup myself and found uh, so much solace yeah. in music, right. To the point that, of being oh my gosh, wary yeah. of certain songs power. You have to be careful with music. Totally. Um, and your book was so therapeutic and I'm, I'm sure many readers have felt the same thing, you know, especially if they do have that kind of emotional connection to music. Yeah. But, um, you mentioned, having, uh, uh, you know, specific connections to books. I wanted to ask you about this. Yeah. Um, you know, Henry Jenkins, the kind of cultural theorist, just put out a book called Comics and Stuff. Okay. And it focuses mainly on how comics uh, talk about the sentimental connections we have to objects. Mm. Um, and it's definitely a book that's relevant to the work you do and the things you talk about, mm. that attachment to sacred artifacts that carry the 
you know, the significance of personal history and our relationships. Um, and like, the thing is, I put tons of marginalia in his book. A lot of them were notes kind of for this conversation, but I couldn't even think to mark up your books in the same way. <laughs> you know what I mean? His graphic novels themselves are sacred artifacts for me. Like they are works of art that need to be protected and preserved. It's something Jenkins talks about at length in his book, yeah. um, because like early comics were pr produced on terribly temporary materials that decayed really quickly yep. and have had to be, you know, preserved, conserved, and and so they just don't disappear. Yes. Um, your your book is mostly about this special connection to music. Mm -hmm. You even describe how particular albums like Holes Live Through This seem to glow. Yeah. Um, but are there books that you consider sacred that have had this sort of sacred status in your collection? Yeah, of course. I mean, in terms of graphic novels or just books in general? I guess really books in general, but I'm curious about the the graphic novels that stand out that have this glow, this aura. Yeah, I'm sure I'm going to forget probably the most important one to me that always happens when people ask me about my favorite. <laughs> These are important to me, but um, I can say specifically like uh, Linda Berry's 100 Demons. Um that book, those comics, I read them when they were originally on Salon, and they were deeply important to me. I was actually reading them at the time that takes place in all the sad songs. So I was not in a good place. I wasn't making comics. Um, and I was nearing the end of my music world that I just felt like Linda's comics were like this window. Again, it's that it's that, that structure of the, of the panel, you know, like, that's where I want to go, whatever that is that's where I want to go. And I feel like that book, when she put it together, it has collage and it's such a world. And I think that's mm -hmm. something about comics, which it's just these objects. Like I feel like even online, they don't, you, you don't get to that depth that you do with a book um, and holding an object in, and you're able to like have this relationship with it uh, that feels very intimate, very personal. Um, so I would say 100 Demons is definitely that one for me. And John Porcellino's um, map of, of my heart uh, is very important to me also. It was another one that sort of began comics for me. And it, it to me, his work is a lot like songs. They are, they are so evocative of, of a certain um, feeling, even if they aren't specifically about you, they feel like they are, you know, and, you know, there, there are comics in there that are just in my, my bones, you know? Yeah. And Linda Berry, definitely, um, you know, the, her Instagram alone has kept oh, me going yes. through, right. through this crisis. Yes. Um, it's just full of, you know, beautiful images, but also passionate political messages. Yes. Um, find her inspiring. Um, but yeah, I wanted to um, talk a little bit more about mixtapes, you know, mm -hmm. uh, as this devotional act, which is how you kind of describe it in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I personally love thinking about how someone I love might listen to and appreciate a song that I put on a playlist really, for them. Right? Like, yeah. you know, and I think about like the book and the film and now the series High Fidelity mm -hmm. and how, you know, it gave a sort of set of principles for how to properly put together a playlist. Yeah. Um, your book doesn't talk about that so much. For you, it's a, it's really a matter of kind of like that personal connection. So I wanted to ask, like, for you, is a good mix about that thing of thinking deeply about how the other person will hear the songs? Does it mostly just mark a specific moment in time? How has putting together music for others evolved for you as an act of devotion? 
Oh, that's such a good question. Um, well, first I want to say that I did have a section in all the sad songs that talked about my formula for a tape, um, but I cut it out because it just didn't fit. Um, mm. So I definitely have a formula <laughs> for the mm. tape. But um, I think all of those things that you said, I think that it, it is about that person, but it's also about you. You know, I mean, if you think about it, you're, you're giving something of yourself to this person. You want them to know you in this way. And so I think about the tapes that like my husband and I now, you know, we, we exchanged and all of the devotion I put into that tape, you know, of like, okay, here's the song that I want to put on here. I want you to understand what I'm saying with this one. And um, and yet it's also a portrait of the time of the music I was listening to and thinking about. And I thought, you know, when I received his tape, I thought, oh, what did he mean by this? And, you know, oh, he was thinking about me when he made this. You know, it was, it's just all of, all of that is loaded in these mixes. Mm-hmm. And like the, the way you draw mixtapes is so compelling in the book, <laughs> you know, and yeah. uh, also album covers too. And I want to talk certainly about like, um, the trajectory of your kind of going from a, being a passive listener to being a passionate listener uh, and connection to specific albums, which you, you represent the cover so lovingly. It kind of reminded me in some ways of Emile Ferris's book, My Favorite Thing is Monsters, and the way that she represents like horror magazine covers. Um, yeah. But, you know, there, you, you represent them as these sort of holy re- relics, as you put it, that yeah. you can't let go of. And, and you know, even the ones that you've discarded exist as this, like, ghostly yeah. thing, right? I love those images. Yeah. Um, but I think what's interesting is that, like, while today we have access to every song ever, as yeah. Ben Ratliff puts it in his book about music in the digital age, we don't always have access to how we felt about music at any one time. Like right. the embarrassment of riches we have today doesn't really help when you're attached to like a specific mixtape. There are these irreplaceable things. Um, and I kind of wonder how it functions as a metaphor for the specific objects we still can't buy, yeah. you know? And like, I'm thinking too about the fact that you've put some of the, um, the mixes in the book on Spotify, right? This yeah. digital platform. Um, we still, I think, yearn for connection to our past through objects. You, you see the way vinyl is selling. Our, you know, all belongings don't provide a sense of belonging. You know, yeah. this is sort of how Henry Jenkins yeah. thinks about it in his book. So the question is, like, what determines whether something will stay with us as a kind of ghostly presence when we lose it or as something that's really powerful that we can't do without, you know? Yeah. Any, I don't know. It's kind of a vague question, but any thoughts? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think music, I mean, I think this is true for art for me um, in general, like all art forms that mean something to me leave this impression. And I really think, and this is something I talk a lot about in um, all the sad songs is just how we listen to music in our bodies. It's not just about what we're thinking. It's like we have this evocative experience physically um and they they are like smell in the way you know that you can listen to a song and it can immediately transport you to another time and place and this is not an unfamiliar phenomena i mean i think about like wes anderson who has such a incredible soundtrack he's known for his soundtracks in his movies um i was not surprised to find out that he actually plays that soundtrack to the actors before they go into the scenes uh, that makes so they, sense. Yeah, right. So, like, I mean, I heard this interview with um, Gwyneth Paltrow, and she was talking about 
you know, the Royal Tenenbaums, and he played her the song that her character is listening to in the scene. And she's like, it physically made her into that character. And you, you can see that why that works so well. Um, there's something about music that really says sometimes things that we can't even verbalize. So I don't know. It's a, it, it is a vague thing to answer, but um, there is, I think there's something about art in general that if it hits something in you, uh, you, your body never forgets it. That's my vague answer. <laughs> no. And, and it's great because I think like uh, the question for me is like, when you look at, for example, TikTok and its influence on music right now, is it hitting young listeners the same way as like yeah. putting on a record and listening to the entire thing? I mean, I think, you know, I wonder if you could speak to the difference between visually representing the content of your tapes on the pages of all the, all the sad songs and then putting it on a digital platform. Yeah. Um, you know, did you, you certainly, like I can imagine you took pleasure in sharing your soundtracks with the reader in the book and that it felt kind of cathartic and devotional, but did it feel different to put them on a digital platform? Did it feel at all like less intimate? Yeah, I actually regret it. Um, uh, and I had no intention of doing it, but I had so many people say, Oh, I really want to listen to this. And so I thought, okay, I'll do it as a tie in. And I completely regretted it immediately because the purpose of those, um, track listings in the book is not so you hear the music that I hear, but that, that it evokes your own narrative, your own song list. And that's the power of how a book, you know, like a comic book, you can't hear the music in it. Um, and so you ha it sort of evokes other things for you. And I really wanted the book not to be about the specific soundtrack that I listened to, but for it to sort of like a song, spur your own memories, your own song lists. And I think that they do that on their own, but the minute you get too attached to what the music is, um, it sort of loses that a little bit and becomes more about my taste or what I was interested in instead of the story of the music. Yeah. That's interesting. This yeah. like this problem of like taste and curating and like mm -hmm. almost virtue signaling by the way that we post playlists um, on these platforms. Yeah. Um, you know, I wanted to talk about, I guess the difference between that and, and what you describe in all the sad songs, which is this, the development of a sense that music belongs to you. Yes. You know, um, I quoted Jenkins a little bit earlier, talking about the kind of sentimentalizing of these things and how, as he says, we can't easily separate our belongings from our sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about your transition from being a passive listener to a more passionate listener, as I say. And, you know, it really, it clearly is about discovering women in music through a friend. Yeah. And after this point, you say it felt like you owned it, like it belonged to you. Um, I have so many albums that I feel this way towards. And the book got me thinking about how gender has certainly played a role in finding songwriters that I identify with. And I think probably, you know, as you say, a lot of listeners probably do this thing of like projecting themselves onto your playlist. And that's part of the point. Mm -hmm. um, the voices in music that you feel sing out defiantly speak for you in some ways. I'm quoting your book a little bit there. What I wanted to know, I guess, is that is this question of like just now, you know, what are you listening to? In the book, you describe a point at which you were still militantly female only. Um, I imagine you're not exactly at that place, but, you know, is there still that kind of passionate 
identification with female songwriters. And like, quick sub question, have you heard the newest Haim album, Women in I Music haven't. Part 3? I don't, oh. no, I haven't. It's, it's incredible. There's a song on there that I think might speak to you called Man from the Magazine. Um, it, it has a chorus that defiantly says, I don't want to hear it is what it is. And it has all of these beautiful lines. Um, you should check it out. But what are you listening to these days? Well, it's interesting. So one of the things about all the sad songs, which was really powerful for me, I mean, one of the residuals from PTSD is that I, I still had a lot of anxiety when I would listen to music. And it took a while for me to sort of heal from that. And I went the full instrumental way. Like I could listen to, I'm really into jazz. I love jazz a lot. Um, listening to a lot of Sigur Rós that I, you know, didn't understand the words to. That was all very emotional music. But writing all the sad songs got me back into songwriting. Got me, I started writing my own songs again. I started listening. I was really, the my entire soundtrack for um, all the sad songs was um, all the Gillian Welch and David Rawlings work. I love them so much. And um yeah, getting into Sharon Van Etten, who I think is fantastic. But I am getting into more sort of traditional folk, really into the Alan Lomax recordings. You know, listening to In the Field recordings, because um, when I was writing all the sad songs, I realized like how much I miss live music. And that's something you may have like every song on the internet that you can listen to. But I, it's sort of amazing to me that I spent my 20s hearing music seven nights a week, you know, going out and seeing friends play or friends bands play or me playing, you know, I feel like that's such a decadence now with this like screen life that we live um, to be in a club with people. Uh, so listening to field recordings, I still listen to them because they're the, they're like a taste of that a little bit, you know, being in a room with someone in the guitar is just still really delicious to me. Gillian Welch has a new album uh, that just came out. Uh, All the good times are past and gone. Yeah. Um, I think about Look at Miss Ohio, especially that song. That it's, so you know, that line, I want to do right, but not right now. No, it's, it's just so good. powerful. Yeah. And, you know, and it speaks to like resisting forms of sexism, even within folk music, mm-hmm. uh, right? Which has, of course, like incredible luminaries like Joni Mitchell, but you know, still can be sort of dominated to some extent by Nobel Prize winning Bob Dylan and a certain kind of like lineage there. Um, And, and so like, I think, you know, you still have to kind of, and she, she kind of represents this, resist a certain kind of sexism. And on that point, like I bought your great gals book for my daughter. You did? And yeah, and she found it really inspiring. You talk about in that book, like the struggle against fear and rejection and the struggle for self-esteem and just basically are advocating for women to see themselves as within reach of greatness. Um, And that's why I got it for her. But I wanted to ask, why was it important for you to produce that book Mm -hmm. as this kind of open-ended day planner and a source of inspiration for young uh, girls? And how did you see it fitting in maybe with an emerging genre of texts that encourage a, a kind of feminist ethos for young girls? it kind of was born from, I did a series of calendars that were all great women and every single day had birthdays of, of great women. Um, and I think it was just, it stemmed from just feeling that still that, that sort of right girl, um, interest in being militantly all women, you know, for some years and really wanting to continue to celebrate the voice of women and the lives of women. Um, and I think that book was such a great opportunity to talk about, 
that we have these ideas about great women, you know, uh, that they're these sort of like perfect celebrities. Um, and in fact, they're, every person is very complicated and they do things, they do things that you never hear of, or sometimes they don't have any confidence or, you know, I wanted to talk about all of the different ways in which um, you can still live a very successful life and still have all of these very complicated parts to you. So that was definitely, it was kind of a book that I had, had wanted to have when I was very young. So that's why I made it. Yeah, I love it. And uh, one of the um, figures that comes up in, like kind of subtly in all the sad songs is Eartha Kitt, yeah. you know, iconic figure, of course, um, yeah. and, and somebody who's, who's both a celebrity and a feminist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, your, your friend Emily's car is named Eartha. This is how I can serve yeah. with them. <laughs> um, and uh, it's funny, Jamila Woods has a song titled Eartha on her album, Legacy, Legacy, Legacy. I didn't share that song with you on Instagram, uh, but I shared her very creative cover of The Cure's Just Like Heaven yeah. from her album that is titled Heaven. There's this really important section of all the sad songs where you depict this transformative moment of hearing a cover of that song in a club. And I kind of wrote to you about that initially. I wanted to talk about the special amount of labor put into, it seems to me, those panels. Um, I keep mentioning Henry Jenkins because I think his study is so relevant to the, to the way you put together that your book, um, he talks about these moments where graphic storytellers slow us down with increased detail and these thoughtful efforts at captivating the viewer. He's especially interested in splash pages as a technique that as he puts it, offers a moment of digression or contemplation amid an experience otherwise dominated by the plot. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like what you're doing is conveying a relationship to music, which I think is kind of like a specific challenge in the medium of comics and one that I don't see many artists do in the same way you do. Mm -hmm. Um, You you show music radiating from instruments. You, You talk about the music of grief and across two pages, the music you're writing and listening to creates a flowing river marking time and grief. Um, how did you develop this style of depicting music as something that sparkles and captivates us and decide on also the ways that you want to depict people's expressions in these scenes? Mm. They convey a lot of emotion and it shows a level of visual experimentation that I'm interested in. Mm. Well, I really, I mean, as you say, it's a challenge to evoke music in a visual form. So I, one of the things that I had kept in mind about the book is that I really wanted to write the story of what it was like for me to live with music, uh, not to listen to music, but to live with it. And so I started thinking of music as a presence, as a, uh, a physical presence that had, that took up room, that moved through time and space. And you see it sort of evolve. I can see it in the very beginning, there's like these little clusters of balloons of, of notes. But then as the book progresses, it really does start expanding and, and taking over and having a life within the panels. And so that was that was very organic, but it also spoke directly to that idea of like what it was like to actually live with music. The panels that you're talking about where I talk about Just Like Heaven and you sort of see the music splash over me and splash into the room and then you turn the page and it's there. there's no uh, human figure. It's just like these sort of... Um, running panels of words and uh, and musical notes. And I really, it was like, how do I describe what I'm describing? 
that's always the question of comic making. How do you describe what you're trying to get down? And that is either visual or written. And what I was talking about was so dark. It was, and I don't mean that like it was sad, but it was so deep within me. It was like some quiet thing I was trying to knit together. And I really wanted the reader to to just be there in that sort of, um, I don't know, like it's a, a dark place. Just be in that space where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm figuring this out and I'm knitting it together while the music is washing around us. I just really wanted to speak to the experience of the music sort of becoming more of an intimate language. Yeah. And, and that specific part of the book I felt was just so cinematic mm. and kind of like underexposed in the sense that it is literally dark. It really immerses the reader. I think the, the question for me is like, why are comics particularly impactful when they are invested in trying to think about our thought processes through this kind of abstraction? Like that's, that's, you know, as an academic, I guess that's what I keep coming back to is like, how is this thing working on me? You know, for yeah. example, you know, I, we, we've talked about music, but at a certain point in the narrative, you admit that music is a thing that definitely changes us, that heals us, but you don't settle on the idea that music is itself sustaining, you know, it's just a part of the solution for you. Right. Um, and, and it's, it's there again, that you come back to the possibilities of the comic medium for exploring these like abstract ideas. There's, you know, this section of the book where the narrative takes an important turn that you mark as a snap. And this mm -hmm. moment of snapping is like a turning point that you represent initially as a swirling cloud of exposition around your character, very darkly swirling. And uh, after the snap, we get an incredible example of an artist forcing the reader to, again, stop following the narrative and yeah. think along with you. I'm also like curious how you develop this abstract style of almost giving the reader an x-ray of your emotions in this moment. Uh, it reminded me a bit of Marjane Satrapi, um, you know, in the sense that she depicts the body as being stretched and distorted as we go through breakups, revolutions, violence, trauma, you know, the boundaries of the body become unstable. What kind of thought went into putting those pages together? Well, I went just directly into the memory, you know, uh, which mm. was all encompassing and it was like a flooding, you know, and so I wanted that experience. It was very intuitive, but I wanted it to be large and it is, it's two, two pages that sort of reflect each other. Um, but I don't know if you notice it. So both, so there's the, the pictures are like my body on, and, um, on both pages, but I still have the nine panel grid and the body is like sort of standing on that grid. So again, mm. it, it's like, it keeps the narrative going in the nine panel grid formation, but the sensations of the body have completely taken over. Um, and I really wanted that experience to be like a flooding and to, so you could really sense that you were there, but you were going away. You know, um, so that's that's the best answer I can give you. It just it, it was very intuitive, but um, yeah, very specific to me. Um, and it's like it's it seems to me really experimental and interesting. Oh. Um, I love that you maintain the grid, but you're kind of like you're bending it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you do a similar kind of bending and, and contorting of characters uh, as you explore anxiety in the latter half of the book. Um, yeah. moments where anxiety comes back to you. 
um, you you represent yourself as like losing your own features, like the distinguishing yeah. features of your face drain away, and yeah. your character takes on like a almost ghostly quality, and like I, I connected that a little bit to the way you depict certain men in the mm -hmm. book, like the men that you started these. Oh, yeah. You know, kind of short term relationships with during that period, they're depicted almost like featureless dolls with no yeah. distinguishing features. Um, what were you doing to the reader in kind of, you know, thinking about anxiety and intimacy with this technique of like still maintaining the fact that there is a character there, but there's something there's thought being put into how that character is being evacuated of like selfhood. Right. Well, the anxiety, again, it was like going into the feeling and re remembering feeling like I was being whited out, you know. And mm -hmm. so the minute I could have hit on that sensation, it was really down to like the little tiny eyes and the mouth. And that's what happens. You just feel you know, like you're getting whited out, you know. And with the, with the men characters, it was sort of a way to um, take the charge away. Because what I was, it was really hard for me to write about that stuff. I think that was the stuff I, I tried to avoid as much as possible and then ended up relenting <laughs> and doing it anyway. And so I didn't want it to be like, well, who do I, how, do I introduce this character? Do I like, who is this person? How do I figure out how to draw them and then make them not really, like you're not going to spend time with them. And so I really thought it would be funny, but also a little disturbing to have mm. these sort of um, bulbous, faceless characters that they really represented a, a behavior more than um, any kind of actual intimacy. And, and it juxtaposes so perfectly with the distinct features of the people that you really connect with yeah. in the right. last act of the book yeah. um, after the move, right? Yeah. Um, and, and like, I wondered about that moment of moving. Daniel Miller writes in his book stuff uh it's just called stuff uh, that moving from place to place as he says allows for a kind of critical realignment of people with their possessions mm. moving he says allows us to reconstruct our personal biography as as represented in memories of associated objects so like you pack your car full but then you you do what you call the ultimate restart where you're hoping to kind of break free and it's still i mean like you have to endure a lot of anxiety and as you represent in the book but then you kind of serendipitously happen upon a, a form of therapy that like really works for you. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's so interesting. I wondered, like, is there a deeper message here about taking risks or were you just kind of trying to be as truthful as possible about narrating your journey of self-discovery? I think I was trying to be as truthful as possible. Uh, but I think through writing this book, I realized like as I write, you know, I'm like I'm looking back and I go, oh my God, I was really lucky things could have gone so south for me. You know, I was in such a bad way. And the fact that I found the therapist that like essentially healed me and helped me, give me, gave me tools to continue to heal um, is sort of a miracle in a lot of ways. And so I don't think of it as like a message of like, oh, this is what you do and you, you know, and everything works out because it, it wasn't like that. I mean, things... I had plans that immediately fell apart. I mean, everything broke the minute I got to California. Um, and uh, I'm just really, really fortunate I found the right people. And I did. I mean, in retrospect, it's it's kind of amazing. Um, but I, yeah, so I think part of me was just when I was writing about the California part, I sort of discovered 
like how fortunate I was. And it was just feeling just so grateful that I met Graham, my husband and my friends and that I found just enough to be okay. You know, it doesn't, it's not the way it, it happens for everybody, but I'm really lucky it happened to me that way. You know, your work is so much about trying to find a way forward mm. without ignoring the importance of looking back. Um, I maybe wanted to connect this with larger political issues if we could. I mean, um, I've noticed that you've also been active in, you know, protesting in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter protests, this yeah. uprising. There's yeah. an effort now. I want to kind of connect this to the effort to meet the moment, as some people are putting it, and problematize and in some cases uh, erase images from a racist and colonial American past. You know, you've got people like Trump, especially calling such efforts acts of hate. Um, but do you think that these, you know, monuments, images like the Redskins logo, Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben's, the Confederate flag, yeah. should, should you, do you feel they should all be removed? I mean, I feel like it's overdue, but I wondered how you look at it as an artist who thinks about the power of images and in particular their nostalgic power, maybe. Yeah. Well, I have to say, honestly, that this is a time of reckoning, you know, it just is for white people. It just is. And so with this reckoning, I'm having a very private moment of, of really looking at my tendency for nostalgia and, you know, specifically, um, I think all this monuments need to go, go, go. I was overjoyed to hear the skins, um, are tossing their imagery, uh, the native population, at least in America, I'll speak to that, um, is so ignored and so marginalized. And I think along with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, I, I have been glad to see that people have actually been lifting the lid to even look at that because n normally it's, it's not even on the table and it really needs to be. So I do think that... Um, the only way forward now is to really take stock. And I'm, I am in a period of really taking stock of, um, you know, my own attitudes, my own ideas, all the things I thought were true. I feel grateful for the opportunity to really dig in deeper because I'm, I'm raising a son, I'm raising a white male. And um, this is the most important work I can do as a white person is to really look at myself in this way. Yeah, and there is this wave, this wave of reckoning happening. And I would hope that lots of people are, you know, more more people than ever have are kind of reconsidering the relationship to these um, nostalgic images of, of, a, of a past that um, is, is replete with trauma. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah. It, uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, Can I just say one more thing about this, though? Can I just oh, please do, yeah. So this is something I'm thinking about a lot, especially the last few days. I just finished reading um, John Lewis's memoir, March, which I had, I'm embarrassed to admit that I had not read. Um, and it's riveting and powerful. It deserves every award that it ever got. But it is, you know, it takes place in the early 60s, um, which is a time that I love aesthetically so much. I'm, I love mid-century Americana. It is deeply challenging to that because all of my, you know, loving of the pop culture and, and the aesthetics um, underneath that is just tremendous trauma and bloodshed and pain 
all done by white people. And I now it's, it's just, it's awful to, to see those things and to go, that was all on the surface and underneath it was such violence and war against civilians. You know, it's, it's, it's very much a needed thing to do, but it's, it's upsetting as hell. I totally amplify the point that March is one of the most important pieces of like graphic storytelling ever made. Ever. Ever. Yeah. And, and it's one of those books, like you have this line in all the sad songs, sometimes art can hit you like a set of instructions. That, that book hits you like a set of instructions. Like it is about uh, nonviolent direct action. It is about direct democracy. It is about how protests work. And we're seeing that bear out today, yeah. um, you know, and, you know, on that point, I guess, of, of art and, and how it can provide this kind of, um, you know, mobilizing kind of energy. You've mentioned before on uh, Noah Van Skyver's YouTube show about how with comics, there's no money in it necessarily. Mm-hmm. And you have to do it because you have something to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my last question is really about how you keep going and what advice you might give to aspiring graphic storytellers who want to use the medium to encourage empathy, mobilization, all this stuff. I mean, what keeps me going is uh, when I'm not stuck in ideas of attention and wanting to get an audience and all of that, which happens, you know, which happens Mm -hmm. when my, my quietest self is just really interested in the life experience and the path. Um, and that's what keeps me going. It's just like the questions that I've had in my body my whole life. Like, what, where, what's the next thing that I want to talk about? Where, what's the next book I've been not only wanting to read, but to what are, what's some of the art that I want to live out? Um, so that keeps me going. It helps that I'm older. I feel uh, time on my, uh, the breath of time on the back of my neck. Um, But I would just say to people who are trying to start out or even like wanting to do more graphic novels, what is the book that you want to see? What is the book that you have felt missing in? You know, um, All the Sad Songs was written because uh, I really, I was so alone with PTSD. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know this was an experience that other people had had. And I thought about what it would be like to come across that book when I was in the midst of PTSD and how normal it would have made me feel. And I feel like that if you're a graphic artist and you want to make something, but you think, oh, will someone like it? Or, you know, will it sell? Or any of those things. who cares? What is the deepest story that you've been afraid to tell? Because that is the one that we all want to hear. Hmm. I can imagine your splash panels providing a source of empowerment akin to soap being used as a, <laughs> you know, superpower. Um, you know, just trying to learn how to like dwell with these feelings and not stigmatize them or jettison them from your experience. I can say it's been a a real pleasure being able to talk to you about your work. Thank you, Scott.